Hello and welcome to this week's Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast. Uh, I'm Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and uh, CCG Clinical Lead for Mental Health, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Andrew Trasetta, again, CCG, Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and also working in other ways for health in Somerset and for practitioners. And Andrew, I understand that you're going to talk to us today about nature immersion, which when you first said it, I assumed uh, meant uh, wild swimming, but I think you're talking about uh, more general things than that, aren't you? Um, it, it could have included wild swimming, uh, Peter. So we're going to talk today about a course I went on recently, which just reminded me how lucky we are in Somerset to have nature around us, but actually how very, very important nature is to help us process our worries, our fears, our concerns, and recalibrate and retune. Well, that sounds great. And I think we have to stress that it doesn't have to be some wonderful moor or, or wild place to enjoy nature. It can just be worms in the back garden or wherever we happen to be, can't it? Absolutely. Uh, and in Somerset, countryside is fortunately not far away for, for the majority of us, so we're very fortunate as well. It was actually a wild place that we went to, and um, I'll tell you about it if you'd like me to. Please do. Yes. So this is something quite interesting. So at medical school, we don't learn about health, we don't learn about environmental medicine, and we don't learn about the importance of nature. So I've been privileged to go on a, a 30 hour course, uh, two half days and, and a night or a day and a half and a night, actually on Dartmoor run by the Royal College of General Practitioners uh, last weekend. And it was absolutely fascinating, three facilitators, nine of us participants, because it was all socially distanced, uh, in an organic farm near Dartmeet, which is one of the prettiest places you can find on Dartmoor. So what did you learn? Well, we were asked to bring our swimming costumes in case there was a chance for wild swimming. But unfortunately, we'd had that cloudburst. And so the river dart was far too dangerous for anybody who wanted to go swimming. Uh, in. So what did we learn? So there we were on an organic farm uh, in October. And it's really interesting to be amongst nature because within a few minutes of arriving in landscape and, and being welcomed, I think we all had that feeling that our stress levels were dropping away and uh, stress levels were actually quite high because there'd been a diversion on the road. One of the roads was blocked and so we all arrived late. So there's that sort of extra frisson. So there's something about the safety of, of having arrived at a place where you're going to be for the next few hours, but also something about arriving in nature and being able to look across to, I think it was Bear Tor, it, I may be wrong on that, across the Dart Valley near Dartney, the East Dart Valley, in a farm that has been part of the Duchy of Cornwall since 1327. And the present tenants there, his... His father, his father and mother, or grandfather and mother, took on the farm in 1937. So they're the third generation tenants of that. And you can imagine that farming is, is not easy anywhere these days. It's We rely on cheap food as a nation, but farmers do a fantastic job and they do a really tough job of, of, of producing food. And the way they've done it over many years is with the agricultural revolutions of the last 50 years of more fertilizer, of pesticides, and that means you can have more output. Now, 
that doesn't really work on somewhere like Dartmoor. And so we had an insight that applies very much to how we work in life. We had an insight into how a farm can be organic and what happens if you stop trying to flog the land hard and get extra outputs if you go for lower inputs and lower outputs. Anyway, we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. This, this feels like it's a metaphor. Do you want to uh, unpack that a little bit more? Uh, bearing in mind that not all our listeners will be into organic food or be able no, to afford it for that matter. And, it, and, it, and it's not particularly organic. It's just that on Dartmoor, um, when you're high up on Dartmoor, and this farm is between 800 and 1400 feet, you can put a lot of fertiliser on and you're not going to get much better out of it. If you have too many animals there to go for too high an output, what happens is you exhaust the land and it becomes much more susceptible, for instance, to drought. So if you have a land that is exhausted, um, a prolonged drought or a prolonged frost might actually kill a lot of the, the plants. Whereas if you have a, a land that is not stressed too much, then it's more, and I know this is a word that's difficult at times for people, it's more resilient. It's got more bounce back ability. So a system that is under too much pressure may not be able to bounce back. A system that is well-managed will bounce back. And we were shown in the big sheds how the animals that were there, and the stocking rate is lower than it used to be, the animals that were there are in for much of the winter because of frost and, and foul weather outside. They have, they have bedding and they have hay as inputs. And the compost we saw was four feet deep. Sorry, the manure we saw was four foot deep. And what happens with that is it's turned over every so often. It gets quite hot. But that's now spread again on the land, and so that nourishes the land again. And that was one very interesting aspect of what happens, that nature has a way of composting waste. And applying that to us human beings, us doctors who were on there, we had busy minds. We were full of stress and worries and concerns and upsets. We need to compost that energy and actually let it become fertiliser in a way for um, fertile thoughts and abilities. Well, that's a very interesting analogy. Uh, I, I like that one. How do we do that? Because it's easier said than done, isn't it? Um, you know, to continue your farming analogy, most of us are under huge pressure to deliver outputs and we can only do it by putting ourselves under, under stress or we just don't deliver. Absolutely. I'm glad you've mentioned the word stress. And before we talk a little bit about stress, and I had some new insights that I haven't learned about from Professor David Peters, who is a, an emeritus professor from the University of Westminster, who was one of our, our tutors. Um, you cannot draw water, you cannot pull water out of an empty well. And so we, we need to refresh our own well all the time. And there's a phrase that's going around, own oxygen mask first. And certainly, if I was on an aeroplane, and it depressurized for some reason, I'd certainly want the pilot to have his oxygen mask first before running around and giving everybody else theirs. So we all, many of us remember that safety warning from the planes. And this applies to everybody in life, but particularly to health professionals as well, because health professionals and mothers and managers and others are very good at sacrificing themselves and overstressing themselves and exhausting themselves in order to look after their responsibilities, people who need them. And that's fine in the very short term, but in the medium and the long term, it is quite exhausting. And this comes back to previous discussions we've had, 
doesn't it? Where our fight and flight stress mechanisms are are there for a reason, Um, but they're there for a short period of time for us to literally fight or or flee away from a a, a predator. But a lot of us are under stress for a long period of time and and then it becomes counterproductive. Well, I'm really pleased you've mentioned the autonomic nervous system and stress again, because I've, I've been sharing about it for many years, but David Peters gave us some really interesting new insights. And so the arousal aspect of the autonomic nervous system is called the sympathetic nervous system, nothing to do with sympathy. And that's the adrenaline, uh, noradrenaline, cortisol arousal. The negative side of it is fight and flight. That's when we feel unsafe. But if we feel safe when we're aroused and we're not excessively aroused, where we become interested, we become the curious hunter, maybe, that we're the one who's looking for new ideas and, and, and able to cope. We're in what some people call a flow state of interest and engagement and working well. So he would class that as the green state. So safe sympathetic arousal, you're in green. Unsafe sympathetic arousal, which is when you move into fight and flight because you see see everything as a threat or see threats and danger, that's the red zone. So there's a green zone and a red zone, and that's the sympathetic aspect. And I suppose the the question would be, how do we move from red to green? Well, it's not only red to green. There's also the parasympathetic, and there are blue parasympathetic, and there is grey parasympathetic. So the blue parasympathetic is when we're relaxed, when we are rest digesting, but doing what human beings have done for many thousands of years, which is to get together and to chew over the fat of life, to chew the cud of life, to to talk over things, to go into our caves, to tend to befriend, to be sociable, to sort out issues, discuss them and talk them through. So that's the blue zone of, of creative rest, recovery and renewal. And we need to make sure we invest time in that, because if we're in either red or green all the time, there's no time for relax and uh, there's no time to fill the tank up again, to fill the well up again. And if we're in red all the time, there's definitely a difficulty. And there's a danger zone as well, another danger zone. Okay, And tell us about grey. So the grey zone is the parasympathetic chill feeling unsafe and at that point we freeze like a rabbit in the headlights and we become inactive we can't feel anything we're frozen we lose our emotional ability we lose our drive and we lose our ability to engage at all with life because we're just completely stuck and in some ways this might mirror um, uh, some aspects of 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 a minor depressive state and we all may have this from time to time, but the challenge is to move into the blue zone to tend and befriend and to recover, and then to use that energy to move into green. Okay. And this sounds great, but I think a lot of people will be saying, well, fantastic, but actually I find it really difficult. I find it hard to mix with people because my anxiety becomes too great. Or as you say, a lot of people with depression will have anhedonia where they they really don't enjoy anything so making that effort to get yourself out of this dangerous negative doing nothing stage is really hard work for some people isn't it 
It, it is. And this, this, we're not talking here about a, a severe depression or anxiety state. We're not talking about a clinical state. We're talking about the normal person who's gone out of balance because like the land which has been stressed too far, it's lost its, it's lost its bounce back ability. It's lost its ability to cope with challenge. And so you have to decrease and ratchet down the pressure for a while. We have to sometimes convalesce and, and take our foot off the accelerator. And, and I suppose just sort of going forward to the end of the 30 hours, because we did some other things, we all left feeling refreshed and re-energised. We all need a holiday. We all need a holy day sometimes, one day a week, in order to spend time in the cave, to spend time in nature, to spend time to reinvigorate, our, reinvigorate ourselves. And I suppose I was just, I was just taken aback by how powerful that time in nature with strangers, was in re-energising. Um, we did go through that exercise, and um, listeners, please, if you're driving heavy machine, driving a car or using heavy machinery, please don't engage on this exercise at the moment. But I invite, I invite everyone to put their feet flat on the floor and to allow their spines to be comfortable and just to be comfortable and relaxed with some regular rhythmic diaphragmatic breaths, which will take us back onto parasympathetic calm and puts us in the ability to recover in that cave state, not hidden away, but in a safe place where we can recover. And we were taught quite a lot about some techniques like that of, of calming. And I'm sure our listeners will have various techniques that they practice from Tai Chi to yoga to mindfulness to to spending time gardening, to spending time in nature, to, to hobbies. Uh, it doesn't matter what works for you, as long as it puts you into a calm, relaxed state, especially, especially I think, if nature is involved somehow, um, or if you can catch sight of an image of nature, whether it's nice pictures. Um, I haven't tried this, but watching Blue Planet, perhaps, in the background whilst you're uh, enjoying something might be useful. Who knows? I know there's uh, evidence, isn't there, that people uh, recovering from operations who uh, can look through a window at a tree outside have much lower infection rates, much better recovery, get out of hospital more quickly. So it's, there's definitely something physiological going on, isn't there? There certainly is. And we were taught um, not just that, but um, David shared with us Beget, B-E-G-G-E-T. And I rather liked this. So... This was a six-step model for calming right down. B for breathe. And breathing calmly, rhythmically, and regularly is powerful. To breathe and to extend your out-breath to five seconds, and I hadn't realised this, but there is science that shows this puts you onto deep parasympathetic chill, uh, deep parasympathetic cave safe recovery very quickly. So several breaths with a five-second out-breath. E is for embodied, so get your, get your mind back into your body, feel your seat on the chair, feel your shoes around your feet, feel your feet flat on the ground, um, and notice the sensations that you're feeling in your body, notice the touch of your clothes. G is for grounded, so that takes that embodiment even further and and noticing not only how your feet and your backside feel on chair and 
and, and ground, but but maybe even imagining like plants, because we were in nature, like plants and trees, we have strong roots into the ground, which, which anchor us. G, the second G is for gratitude, and the emotion of gratitude to be grateful for, for something, anything, it doesn't matter what it is, but to express in yourself the emotion of gratitude is very powerful. Um, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins all start flowing. And if we hold that focus of gratitude on a particular thing for uh, 20 seconds, then actually we're changing the wiring of our brain positively. Uh, e is for emotion. What is the emotion that we're feeling right now? Notice it and observe it, but avoid getting caught up in it, but just notice and observe it. And finally, touch. And there's a process that I hadn't realised, but if we use our hands to cross our arms lightly, and then if we stroke our upper arms with the opposite hand, I didn't realise there is scientific research that shows this is a very powerful stimulus that makes us feel safe and comfortable. Um, so there's beget, B-E-G-G-E-T, breathe, embody yourself, ground yourself, express gratitude. What's the emotion that you have right now? and touch. Uh, and that's the phrase, that's what we were using. And if you can do that in nature or with nature as a backdrop, um, that's great. And I gather that YouTube has got a number of nature videos and relaxation videos that people could access. And that's really helpful. I, I think a, a lot of people will be thinking, well, it, it's great to go on one of these um, retreats, but I haven't got the, the time or the money to do that. But you've given us some some really practical things that anyone can do. And while you're going through them, a lot of them were very familiar. So the, uh, the breathing in for uh, three seconds and breathing out for five seconds and relaxing as you breathe out, that's absolutely part of, of most meditation practices, for instance, isn't it? Very interesting. So there's actually a lot of science behind what could have been looked at and outsiders could look at and say, well, that's a that's a bit of a holiday jolly. No, it wasn't. It was a time learning about the science against the backdrop of nature um, of how to be healthy. And, you know, one of the other things that was really interesting, we did some we did a little bit of conservancy work, clearing a path. And we did we got went on a farm walk for a while and had some fascinating insights, not just on the compost, but on how the diversity of the, the meadows um, works, the diverse flora uh, works to, to help resilience and help the pastures. And in fact, on that particular farm, they cut the hay after the flowers have have become seed heads. And they sell that hay to other farms who want to develop a natural seed uh, seed um, uh, flower meadow um, with, a, with diverse species. Um, the conversations that you have with people when you have a backdrop of nature are very different from the conversations when you're surrounded by four, four walls and straight lines. Very curious. I don't know why. No. But it, it, it absolutely it works. And as you were talking about that and uh, farmers trying to help other farmers, um, I was reminded of our happiness podcast where um, we were we were saying that meaning is so much more important than pleasure uh, as a long term way to, to happiness. Yes. Yes. And uh, farms have to diversify. And this particular farm has diversified by having lower inputs and. Um, they do, as many hill farms do, have a level of subsidy, but they've diversified into actually having a, a, a venue where people go for courses. And that's why we were there for that course. And I have to say, I learned uh, I've, I learned so much. I've got the privilege of having 
uh, two grandparents who were were both dairy farmers and uh, we had a small holding when I was a youngster so picking up eggs at 20p an hour in your uh, in your uh, teenage years was something that was part of my life in the 60s and 70s um I think Jeremy Clarkson got about that for his uh, year on the farm, didn't he? <laughs> can, can I raise something, Andrew? It, yes. Although nature is generally a very positive force, I see people, particularly younger people, who actually find it a source of great anxiety. And they they get constant feeds on their social media about global warming. They they see all the things around about that, see nature going, going to... to a very difficult place. How, how do we counter those negative and, and quite justified anxieties about where we're headed? Are, I think there are very justified concerns about where the planet's going and the big picture. But I suppose there's a difference between knowing about and knowing. And what was so powerful, um, Peter, about this experience is that direct experience of, of being there and seeing the landscape and walking under the trees and hearing the river dart rushing down and walking across the stones is knowing, whereas thinking about it or talking about it on social media is knowing about it or having an opinion about it. That's not the same as knowing. So I suppose I would advise everybody to have a fix from nature and two things to, to not... Two medical conditions that I have diagnosed over the last year in, in friends, in colleagues, and in the caseload I look after are, are not in the textbooks, Peter. They are holiday deficiency syndrome and nature deficiency syndrome because those two things, they, even on a holiday, can just be as little as two hours away if you're a carer and you're looking after responsibilities and you're looking after somebody who's in, who's in difficulties. Just a few hours away, maybe even a, a night or two, a few hours away from your regular routine, especially if it in, involves nature, uh, and and time away. So holiday deficiency syndrome and nature deficiency syndrome, if you can combine them together in, in the solution, you have a quick fix that, dare I use the word soul, it nourishes our soul. Uh, and the German poet Goethe, 200 years ago, said that nature is the teacher of our soul. So maybe that's what we were experiencing. Maybe it was. And I think you pointed out an important point, which is that a lot of us now get access to secondhand information and view the world in a secondhand way through, uh, through televisions, through mobile devices, through iPads or whatever. And that that's very different from actually experiencing it and touching it and smelling it and, and feeling it, getting cold, getting hot, rather than just viewing it secondhand. Absolutely. And if people think this is airy-fairy and fluffy-duffy, there's a lot of good scientific evidence about the benefits of forest bathing, which you and I might call going for a walk in the woods, uh, and all sorts of other things. Sorry, that's not to diminish forest bathing, but I, I recommend the walk in the woods as well. Uh, for instance, uh, on the Harvard website, there's, uh, there's an article, Can Forest Therapy Enhance Health and Wellbeing? And the answer they come out with is yes. Yes. And as well as changing the stress hormones in our bodies, it also has effects on, on brainwaves, doesn't it? You can actually see the changes on an e, uh, EEG in people who undertake deep relaxation. 
Indeed. So for those of our listeners who are living in, Sun, in, in Somerset, enjoy the Quantocks, enjoy the uh, Mendips, enjoy Exmoor, enjoy the Blackdowns, enjoy our wonderful coasts, enjoy the levels, uh, maybe even go outside the county to Stour Head. And for those listeners who live outside Somerset, there used to be a phrase for the South Somerset District Council used to used to put out South Somerset, share the secret. Well, you're very welcome to come and enjoy the secrets of, of the beauty of Somerset. Well, that sounds good advice. And uh, I think I would add, enjoy getting cold and wet and blown about a bit as well as uh, as winter comes on us. So it's not just about lovely sunshine, is it? It's about experiencing nature directly. Absolutely. An activity in nature. It doesn't have to be exercise. I'm not sure I like that word exercise. It conjures up lycra to me. And so activity, a walk is very good. I think this is a very good point for us to leave our podcast, leave our chairs and go out and experience nature. And hopefully some of some of our listeners will be inspired to do the same. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. Peter, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.